0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Frontside Podcast, episode number 66. I am a developer, Charles Lowell, at the Frontside and also host in training for 65 episodes. This is my 66th. And um, I'm flying it alone this uh, week, but we do have on the show with us a very special guest. Actually, the person who taught me how to podcast who was like oh I think what was that uh, about 10 years ago he was like Charles we should uh, do this podcasting thing and um, started my very first podcast with him and I still haven't figured it out but uh, he's uh, his name is uh, Michael Cote and he's a fantastic guy and welcome uh, welcome to the show Cote thanks
1: for having me Charles it's great to be here
0: yeah now you're over you're, what, what are you up to these days you're over at uh, Pivotal that's right I work
1: at Pivotal and uh I don't know, probably people who in the developer world know them know them for spring. We have most of the spring people. And then uh, we also have this thing, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, which uh, we're not supposed to call it a platform as a service, but for, you know, matters of concision, it's a platform as a service that you run wherever. It's the runtime that you run your stuff in. And then we also have a bunch of uh, data products like Jimfire and uh, Greenplum and things like that. And then also uh, epitomously, if that's a word. Uh, we have Pivotal Labs now. I think it's eponymously. Eponymously, it's a- yes. Now you might remember Pivotal Labs as the people who uh, use Chef scripts to configure their desktops. You remember that? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I remember that. You remember? I was into that. Yeah, oh, in wow. a
1: coincidental kind of way, the inspiration for the Project Spudnik thing, which is coincidental because now Dell Technologies owns Pivotal, so it's sort of like all of that uh, stuff has come full, full circle. And uh, I guess also since I'm introing myself. So I work on what we call the advocate team because um, we don't call them evangelists. No one likes to be called that, I guess. I guess there's 12 of us now. We just we just hired this person also in Austin, Ashley McNarma, who's big in the Go community and apparently can, can make images of uh, gophers really well. And uh, I'm sure she does many other extraordinary things, not just to illustrate or master. And uh, so everyone else basically like codes or uses a terminal, but I I do slides.
0: Well, you know, that's uh, that's your your weapon of choice, right? It's uh, a more elegant weapon for uh, a civilized time or something like that. I'm going to look it up on Wikia. But yeah, you know, basically
1: what we do on on, uh, our team is uh, we just talk about all the stuff Pivotal does and problems that we solve and the way people and organizations like would think to care about our stuff. Mm -hmm. And most of what I do is, I guess you could call it the the management consultant type of stuff. Like since I have a background as an analyst and I used to work on uh, corporate strategy and M&A at Dell. So I have have a vantage point uh, in addition to having programmed a long time ago Mm -hmm. about... um, If you're changing your organization over to be more agile or trying DevOps, or as we would say, cloud native with a hyphen, how do you change your organization over and what works and doesn't work? And uh, how can you get over the idea? Most people in large organizations are all like, you know, they sort of pat you on the head. I'm sure you encounter this. uh, where Mm -hmm. They're like, that sounds really nice that we would be doing all the good, correct ways of using computers, but we're basically terrible and we can never (laughs) make that happen here. So thanks for talking with us. We're going to go back and stew in our own juices of awfulness. And uh, you, you got you to gotta pluck them out of that self-imposed uh, cannibal pot uh, uh, there in the jungle and show them that uh, they actually can improve and uh, do things well.
0: So would you say you're, you feel like your job is kind of like being that person who like, shakes them awake and be like, good God, get a grip on yourself.
1: Sure, sure. <laughs> that that's a very popular uh second or third slide in a presentation the fud slide the fear uncertainty and doubt slide where you're basically like uber and then everyone just like soils their pants because they're, they're afraid <laughs> that like Airbnb and Uber and Wealthfront and, and Google is going to come in and, uh, as they say, disrupt their staid industry. And I, I try not to use those slides anymore because they're obnoxious. But yes. And, and also also most people in in uh, organizations, large organizations nowadays, they know all of that. And they're, they've already, they've already uh, moved to the putting on a new pair of pants
0: stage of their uh, strategizing. Mm-hmm. Huh. You know so so you've got you know the kind of the corporate wake up call aspect of it but then it also seems like a huge component of your job which is was you know when you were at Red Monk uh, when you were at uh, 451 is it 451 or 451
1: Yep yep 451
0: 451 um, and even you know maybe to a lesser extent it was Dell was someone who was you know paid and paid well to just kind of mull it over like uh, just kind of sit there and you know asynchronously process uh, the tech industry, kind of like organizational yeast, uh, and and let it ferment, kind of uh, trying to see where the connections lie. And then once you've kind of made that happen, present it. Is Do you think that's fair? Like, yeah. that's what sprung to mind when I heard you saying like, yeah, we just kind of sit around and think about what, what is pivotal and what does it do? And what, you know, where, what's it going? And but like, how do you get that job of like, yeah, I'm just kind of a professional muller? <laughs>
1: That's right. Well, so uh, yeah. First of all, I think I think professional muller is uh, accurate as long as it's. I guess mulling is also for uh, what's that thing you drink at Christmas that you put the little uh, clovers in? Yeah, Yeah, like glow wine. It can feel like that sometimes late at night. But yeah, in having a job as an analyst, so I was an industry analyst at two places for a total of about. um, eight years or so. And then as you're saying, doing, um, strategy at a company. And now what I do here, essentially a lot of what you do is you just, uh, this is very difficult. I know it sounds to people. You just read a lot of the internet, right? Like, <laughs> like you just, you just consume a lot of the commentary and the ideas of things that are going out there and you try to, uh, understand it and then synthesize to use a cheesy word. Synthesize it into like a new form that kind of explains what it is and then finally, the consultant part comes in where uh, you go and meet with people or you proactively think about what people might be asking. And they say something like, so what does this mean for me and how would I apply it to solve my problems. And so, I guess as an example of that, I apologize for being a little commercial, but these are just the ideas I have in my head. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Ford is a is a customer of ours, and they also have invested in us, which is kind of novel. We have GE and Ford invested in Pivotal and Microsoft and. Dell Technologies is an interesting mix. But anyways, so they have this application called the uh, the Ford MyPass application. And I drive a Ford Focus. Subaru? Yeah, well, not But you Subaru. do drive a Ford. Yeah, because, you know, I don't care about cars. It's a bunch of nonsense. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I see this app. And basically the app, if you have a more advanced one, it might tell you your mileage and even like remotely start your car. But it it doesn't really do that much, right? Like, you have the app, and it'll tell you, like, information about your car and where to park. And it even has this thing where, like, it links to another site to book a dealership thing, which, like, this annoying. Why would you want to book a dealership? To buy another car? Well, because, like, the Ford Focus I have is um, notorious for having transmission problems. And so you're like, ah, I got to go take it into the dealer to get, like, all this recall stuff taken care of. So wouldn't it be nice? I don't know if you've ever worked with a car dealer, but... You know, it's uh, not desirable.
0: Yeah, it would be nice if they didn't charge $6,000 for everything.
1: Right, right. I mean, I mean, it's it's a classic system of um, having kind of a closed market, therefore, that jacks up prices and lowers uh, sort of customer service usually. What, what's, right. what's the fancy word for there's a uh, negative correlation if you were to chart it out? Like price is negatively correlated to your satisfaction with it. Kind of like the airline industry, not to bring up a contemporary mm-hmm. store topic, right? You pay a lot of money to fly and you're like, this is one of the worst experiences I've had in my life. Whereas you go to the dentist and get a root canal and you're like $20 copay, loving it. (laughs) Anyhow, so this FordPass application doesn't really do very much, right? So what does that Uh mean for what I was explaining? So if you go look up and read about, you know, starting back in the late 90s, your extreme programming and then your agile software development and your DevOps nowadays, one of the major principles is, you know, what you should do is ship often. Maybe you should even ship every week or every day. Like, don't worry about like this gigantic stack of requirements that you have and whatever. You should be shipping all the time. And then we've trained ourselves to no longer say uh, "failing fast." That was a fun, cheeky thing back in the late 2000s. But have we like, trained
0: ourselves not to say that anymore?
1: I don't hear it very often. Man,
0: I gotta go scrub my brain.
1: Yeah, well, you know, this is this is why you consult with me every 10 years. as I tell okay, I tell good. you the new things. Here we go. We're Anyways, have, to have
0: you on the podcast again? Uh...
1: That's right. So you have this idea of like, well, we should be releasing weekly, but then if you go to Ford, you're like, what does that mean? And to to shave the shaggy dog here, like, essentially, the idea that they're shipping this mobile application that doesn't really do very much is an embodiment of the idea that they should be shipping more frequently. So... This is maybe a stupid example. It's not that it's not going to do very much like permanently, but as uh-huh. I have witnessed, it's that very frequently they add new features. So Ford is in this cadence with their this app that instead of working on an application for two years and having everything in it, they're actually right. releasing it on I don't know if it's weekly, but they're releasing it on a very frequent basis, which allows them to add features. And what that gets you is all right. the advantages of, you know, like a fast iteration cycle a small batch thing where where they can study is this actually a good feature right they can do all your lean startup nonsense right, right? and right. so that's a very like weird perhaps example of how you explain to someone like a large car manufacturer like Ford this is what devops means for you and therefore why you should spend a lot of money on pivotal now that's that's the part that lets me pay my mortgage every <laughs> month the the last the last bit there. right so pivotal builds apps well, the, the labs people build apps for you, right? Like <laughs> I'm kidding, Cote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, they actually do. Like the, the labs people are kind of like a boutique of another boutique. Like ThoughtWorks is kind of a boutique, but they're kind of a boutique version of ThoughtWorks. That probably uh, is terrible as someone who markets for Pivotal to do that. You ever notice how uh, political candidates never really name their opposition? Like you never really want to name your competition. But anyways.
0: Pivotal marketing engines are going to come crashing through your window. If we hear uh, everybody, if we hear him in the next five seconds, well, I guess you can't call 911 because this is all not live.
1: Yeah, that's true. So the uh, the labs people will build stuff for you. And then the part that I work in, the Pivotal Cloud Foundry people, they have the actual runtime environment, the cloud platform that, that you would run
0: all that stuff in.
1: Plus all the spring nonsense for your, uh, your microservices and uh, your spring boot. And I don't know. I understand people like that.
0: So good for Ford for actually being able to experience uh, iterative development and the the joys and the benefits that come with it. But this is actually something that I actually wanted to talk about independently was as I kind of advance in my career, I kind of find myself pushing back a little bit against that like incredibly tight iterative schedule. I mean, I, shipping things is fantastic and it's great. But like you still need, like I find so much of my job these days is just trying to like, Think out and chart a course for where those iterations will will carry you. And there is like a huge amount of upfront design and upfront thought that's it is speculatory, but it's very necessary. Like you need to speculate about what needs to happen. Uh, and then you know you kind of measure it against what's actually happening. But I feel like so like that kind of upfront design and upfront thought, we kind of had this moment where we were like, well, we don't need that anymore. Let's throw it all in the garbage. And, you know, in favor of doing things in these just incredibly tight loops uh, and kind of finding where's the clutch point where the, that kind of long range thinking and long range planning comes and meets with uh, the, the iterative development. Sure. And like I, st- I have no idea. I have no idea. Like, what, what's the best way for those to kind of match up? Those long cycles and those short cycles, like, where's the clutch plate? I'll give you
1: two and a half, so to speak, trains of thoughts on that. One of them is, I think...
0: <laughs> two and a half trains of thought. I like that. Can we skip straight to the half train of thought? Well, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to start
1: with the half, which is, as, uh, as you notice, is just uh, uh, taking all of your questions and putting periods at the end of them before I, before I round up to answering the question. Anyways... I think, I think a lot of the lore and the learnings you get from the agile world is basically from consultants and teams of consultants. And so necessarily they are not domain experts in what they're doing. So their notion is that we're going to learn about what it is we're doing. And we don't actually know. We can't predict ahead of time because we're not domain experts. So they almost have this attitude of like, we'll just figure it out on the job. So let's say the front side gets hired to go work on a system that allows the forest service to figure out which trees to go chop down or not if you're the
0: forest service we are available to do that
1: yeah i'm I'm guessing you don't have a lot of arborists who have 10 20 years of experience working there
0: Mm -hmm. no we
1: don't and so you have no idea about that domain so in doing an iterative thing a lot of you won't be able to sit down and predict like well everyone knows that when you send the lumberjacks out they're going to need these five things so we're going to have to put that that feature on there i mean you just need that like they need to be able to call in flapjacks when they run out Right, like that's just that's just what's going to happen. So you don't you don't know all these like things they need to do. So you you just can't sit down and cogitate about it ahead of time. So I think this notion, and also this comes in from the lean startup, where there's a small percentage of software that's actually done globally, and the notion of the lean startup is that when you're doing a startup. You're never going to be able to determine what your exit is how you cash out whether that's building a successful long-term company while you get sold to someone or whether you ipo you're not going to be able to predict what that business model is so you just need to start churning and not think a lot ahead of time now the problem becomes i think that if you are a domain expert as as you can do the inverse of all the jokes i was just making there you actually kind of can sit down and start to predict things right you're like We know we're going to need a flapjack service so we can predict that out and start to design around that. And you can do some upfront thinking. Now, similarly, developers often overlook the huge amount of governance and planning that they do for their own tools. Right. Which which uh, I know you're more cognizant of being older. Right. Like. Right or more experienced as they like to say. <laughs> but basically like there's a bunch of as we used to call it when I did real work and developed stuff, iteration 0 work. Like we're going to need a build a build system. We're going to need version right. control. Like you actually do know all these things you're going to need, right? Like so mm-hmm. there are all these things you can plan out and it's analogous to whatever domain you're working in. So sometimes it is worth, at least for your tool chain, it is worth sitting down and planning out what you want. Now, to hold back the the people who are going to crash through my window, one of the things you should consider is using Pivotal Cloud Foundry. That's probably something you should cogitate (laughs) on ahead of time.
0: I think they're going to crash through your window and give you a martini. Oh, yeah. If the the marketing ninjas are going to do that... uh... Uh, if you mention them in a positive light, uh-huh.
1: that you know, it's it's a uh, it's eleven ten fifty two uh, central. But if we were in London, it would probably be an appropriate time. So we'll just we'll just think about that. Now, on the other hand. You don't want to go too overboard on this pre-planning. And I'll, get, I'll give you an example from a, a large health insurance company that I was talking with uh, recently. And they were saying they had this mobile app. It's always a mobile app. They had this mobile app that had been languishing for 15 months, and it really wasn't doing anything very interesting. It was just not working well, and they could never release it, right? So this is a classic example of, like, we took a long time to release a mobile app, and then we never released it again. And then who to right. thunk, it blows, Right. Like and it's, it's, it's not it's not achieving all of the, the business goals that we wanted. Right. And mostly what right. a health insurance company like I've talked with a lot of the health insurance companies, what they want with their mobile app is at least two things. Right. And probably many more. But these would be the top of the list is one. They want their customers, their users to be able to like look up what their health insurance is, figure out doctors they can go to, the basic functioning that you expect from your your health insurance company. Right. And two, they want to encourage their customers to do healthy behaviors. Because if you think about it, as a health insurance company, health insurance, in my mind, is basically like this weird gamble of like, I'm gambling on the fact that you're going to be healthy because then I pay out less to you and you just give me money. So the healthier that your, your users can be, the more profit you're going to make. So you, that's why they're always trying to encourage you to be healthy and stuff like that. So anyways, their mobile app was not achieving at least these two, if not other like uh, business goals they have. Mm-hmm. And so they, were, they basically were, were rebooting the effort. And the way they started off is they had, I don't know how many inches thick it was, but they had a, a big old uh, sort of stack of requirements. And the first few iterations the product team who was working on it was like talking with the business analyst about this and going over it and what they sort of uh the the as we would call them pivotal and the product owner but the person who runs the team what they started to realize is like to cut a long story short this is kind of a waste of time like we shouldn't just prioritize these 300 features and put them in some backlog right. and execute on them because these are the same features that we based the moribund application on we should probably just start releasing the application, kind of like the Ford MyPass app, right? Right, right. And so that said, they did have a bunch of domain experience, right? So they had a notion of basically what this app was going to do and they could start planning it out, but they figured out a good balance of not paying attention to, uh, as Martin Fowler used to call it, the almighty thud of all the requirements, right? And so what they ended up doing is they basically... What's uh, the
0: almighty thud?
1: You know, he's got some blicky or whatever, like, (laughs) entry that's basically like, we started a project, and I think it's from 2004 or so. Like, we started a project, and uh, someone FedExed me, about 600 pages of an MRD or whatever, and I put it down on my table and it made a loud noise. And so he calls that the almighty thud when you get this gigantic upfront requirement thing. Right. Anyways, so what happened in this this health insurance thing is they uh, stopped listening and talking with those people and they kind of like, you know, chaffed them out, not... Not like when you rub your legs together, but they kind of distracted them to that fact. But then eventually they just got them out of the cycle and they started working on the app. And then lo and behold, they shipped it and things are working out better now.
0: I think, you know, kind of hearing what you're saying and kind of thinking it over, I think if you're going to have an almighty thud, what you really want is you want all that upfront research and all that upfront like requirements gathering or whatever, Not necessarily to take the form of a set of features or some backlog of 300 things that the the app, you know, quote-unquote needs to do or should do, but just a catalog of the problems, like just a roadmap of the problems. Exactly. You know, that actually is very valuable. If it's like, hey, these are things that are true about, you know, our users and these are the obstacles that they face. And if we do choose that we want to go from... To point B, where we are at point A, then you know we actually you know we have a map of what are the things that are sitting in front of that, and and what are the risks involved, and like it's kind of like, you know, if you've got uh, if you're you know you you played you, you're you're from my generation you played the Oregon Trail right yeah you have dysentery right uh, so I don't know where I'm going with this analogy but my point is is like developing that app is kind of like going from Kansas City to Portland right. But uh, the thing about software is you don't need to, like, necessarily have your cornmeal. You, you don't need to say, like, we're going to need six pounds of cornmeal and we're going to need, like, these wagons and we're going to need these mules because this is software. And you can just code a mule if you need it. Yeah. But you might not need a mule if the rivers are not in flood. I don't know. This is uh, – like I said, I don't know where I am going with this analogy. But But do you see what I'm saying? The point I'm trying to make is that having the map of – the Rockies and where the passes are, you know, is going to help you.
1: Yeah. yeah, No, this is probably where I'm supposed to expertly rattle off what Wardley maps are and how they help, which, which is fine. I mean, I think that's a great tool. There's this guy, Simon Wardley, and he's actually a great, I don't know, contemporary philosophizer on IT-led strategy. He, I think he works for uh, CSC, who no longer owns mercenaries, but they used to, computer science corporations. I think they own a little bit of HP services division. But he works for some think tank associated with CSC, and he has this great, he's got a couple of OSCON talks on it, uh, where he goes over, it's called a Wardley map and it's a way that you start figuring out what you're saying, which is to say your company's strategy and using your fraught metaphor of the era of tall hats, you know, right. if you remember that other movie, if you're on the Oregon trail broadly, your strategy is I, and, and, and people get all up in your face about the difference between a plan and a strategy. And to them, you know, it's just like, they just will put mute on them and edit them out of the audio. Cause they're very annoying. We'll call it an approach. That's right. So your plan or your strategy, and pardon me if I lose these, use these phrases, you know, free and loosely, and everything, is you would like to get to Oregon and you would like to live there and maybe grow apples or start, you know, a mustache wax company or some donuts, whatever it is you do out there once you get to Oregon. And their strategy is: so, what are the assets that I have? I have a family. I have some money. And so I also know some people who are going there, and so I'm going to buy a stagecoach and a mule, and then I'm going to kind of wangle it out, and we're going to go over there. And also part of our strategy is we're going to go through the Northern Pass because we're used to winter versus the Southern Pass, which isn't the Oregon Trail, uh, because – reasons right like maybe mm-hmm. texas isn't part of of the union yet so like i don't want to deal with the transition between whatever that weird texas thing down there the Desert.
0: Is. there's a southwestern yeah, desert. Yeah, yeah
1: yeah i don't i don't know how, i don't have the capabilities to survive in a desert so i need to go to the north and hopefully like i won't be like that movie and have a grizzly bear rip up my backside and everything So you sort of put together this plan. Now that going back to uh, what you would do in sort of like an IT world is like, to your point, someone does need to define what we would call the business value or the strategy, right? Like the what you want to do. And like looking at the Ford thing. What Ford wants to do is they do cogitate and think ahead of time, and they're like, uh, "We manufacture cars, and you got electric cars and Uber, right? Like, you know, you got that's that's where the scare slide comes in. And so, in the future, who knows if people will still buy cars, right? It might be like that iRobot movie where all the cars are automated and you just go into one. So, as a company whose responsibility is to always is to be as immortal as possible. We need to start making plans about how we can survive if people no longer, individuals no longer buy cars. So let's do that, right? So this is a huge upfront notion that you would have. And then that does kind of trickle down into things like the, the, my Ford thing I'm, I'm kind of speaking on their behalf is like, so if we have a direct connection with people, maybe eventually we introduce like an Uber like service. So you can just check out a Ford car and then maybe this and maybe that. So it's sort of this right. strategy of like, how do we set ourselves up to do that? Now, I think the agile people, what they would kind of go for is like, it's really good to have that upfront strategy. And you'll notice that in a lot of lean manufacturing and agile talk, no one ever talks about this stuff, much to my extreme annoyance. Like they don't ever talk about who, who defines the strategy and who defines that you're working on this project. That's sort of left as an exercise to the reader. Anyways, so the Agile people would say, like, the implementation details of that are best left to the development team in an Agile model. I just, just like the developers mm-hmm. are always arrogantly like, hey, product manager, how about you uh, F off about how I should implement this? I am the expert here, and let me decide how I'm going to implement it, the feature that you want for me. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of like that rushing, dolling down of uh, of things. So to the development team, Like, uh, you worked on some, uh, what was it, band frame wire thing a long time Mm -hmm. ago. And it was basically like, we don't know it. Maybe this is not the case, but let's pretend like it was. We don't know exactly how you're going to implement this stuff. But our goal is that there's bands and they need sites and ways of interacting with their users. So let's just figure out what that looks like. But they had that upfront idea of, of ways that they were doing things.
0: Let's like start walking.
1: To babble on some more, there's another edge case that you were making me think of, uh, which is a good way of thinking through like, of, you know, almighty thuds versus how much planning you have. And mm-hmm. that's uh, that's government work, particularly not uh, government work that's done by contractors and especially military contracting work. And um, what you notice in government work is they have seemingly way too much paperwork in process, right? Like they literally will have project managers for project managers. Right, and the and the project managers have to like update how the project is going in the reports, and if they don't do the reports correctly, the contract is penalized, and and you might even get fired for doing it. And if anyone stops and says, "Well, is the software working?" they're like, "No, no, 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 don't be naive. It doesn't matter if the software is working or not. If we don't fill out the project report, we're fired." Right, and to like someone like yourself or me, it's just like your head explodes. You're know, like, "But working software, right? Not not a concern." So. In that case, it actually is part of the require the feature set. Part of the deliverable is this nauseating amount of project reporting and upfront requirements, which has mm-hmm. this trickle-down effect of annoyance. But it's just like, that's what you're getting paid for, so that's what you do. And And if you want to make yourself feel better about it, right? Like, I don't know how it is in the rest of the world. But in the U.S., basically, we think the only... Person worse than maybe Lucifer is the government, right? I don't know why this comes about. Like, we enjoy the fruits of the government all the time, but for some reason, we just think they're awful. And so, whenever we give money over to the government, uh, we want to make sure that they're spending it well and that they're not corrupt. And I don't know that they don't hire their entire family to help them run the government and make sure that they're making extra money globally in their businesses. I wouldn't know anything about that. But, you know, essentially, you want to make sure there's not corruption. So, transparency is almost more important than working software and the way you achieve that transparency is with all this and not this this crazy documentation
0: here's the thing i agree the transparency is fantastic but nothing is more transparent than working software Mm. nothing is more transparent than monitored software right right but nothing is more transparent than than software who's by its very nature is radiating information about itself you know you can fudge a report but you can't fudge like you know a million happy users yeah
1: no no and and don't get me wrong i'm not saying that the way that things currently operate is the ideal state i'm saying that that desire right. for transparency has to be addressed and for example mm-hmm. using using your example let's say you were delivering working software But you are also skimming 20% off the top into some Swiss bank account that you were, you know, you're basically embezzling. And then it turns out that you had, you know, you said you needed 500 developers, but you only actually had 30 developers working. It was corruption. So the means, even though the ends, even though the outcome was awesome, the means was corrupt. And so that's the thing in a lot of government work that you want to protect against. Anyways, I just bring that up as an edge case. And so a principle to draw from that when it comes to almighty thudding is like, sometimes that is part of the deliverable, right? Like, we would aspire in our fail fasty agile world to not have a bunch of, of gratuitous documentation as part of the deliverable because it seems like a waste it would be like every morning when you battle with your kids to get their shoes on you had to write a two-page report about how your morning getting ready to go to school stuff w- with your kids was going as a parent you would be like i don't need that right like however maybe if you were like an abusive parent and it was required for you to send it, fill out a daily status report for you to retain the uh, the parentship of your kids maybe it would be worth your time to fill out your daily status report that was mm-hmm. an awfully depressing example there.
0: But like. <laughs> I would say let's go back to the Oregon Trail. <laughs> That's right. Okay, but so what I'm hearing is that so and we'll go. We will take it back to the Oregon Trail. Is that you also need to consider? We were saying you you have some sort of strategy, which is we want to go sell apples and mustache wax. So, but but what we're going to do is we're just going to start walking, even though we don't have a map. But obviously, if you send out scouting missions, like you know where you're going, you know that the the west coast is out there somewhere. You start walking, but the stakes determine how much of your resources you spend on scouting and like map drawing.
1: Yeah, 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 and, and and so so my way of thinking about strategy, and and again, you know, like people, strategy is this overloaded word. But my way of thinking about strategy is you establish a goal, right? I would like to go to the west coast. The next thing, now, how you figure that out could be a strategy on its own. Like, how did you figure out you want to go to the West Coast? But you somehow you've got to get to a prime mm-hmm. mover. So whatever, right? Maybe those tall hat people keep beating me up, so I want to go to the West Coast. So mm-hmm. I want to go to the West Coast is the prime mover. There's nothing before that. And then you got to be like, you deal in a series of constraints. What capabilities do I have? Which is another way of saying, what do I not have, right? And what's my current situation and context? So in the Oregon Trail thing, you might be like, well, I have a family of seven. So I can't just get a horse and, like, go buy a pack of cigarettes and never never uh, show up again, right? I guess I could do that. That's probably popular. But, like, I as an individual have to take this family of six other people and we ha- do I have the capabilities to do that? How could I get the cash for it? Because I need to defend against all the madness out there, I'm going to need to, like – find some people to meet with, like you're just you're thinking in scenario planning out all this stuff. And this gets to your point of like, if you're going to Oregon, it probably is a good idea to plan things out. You don't want to just like, you know, the next day, just figure it out to use a Dave Attell joke, right? It's like, why do they sell luggage at the airport? Is it like anyone's just like, screw it? Grab a pack of clothes and we'll sort it out at the airport, right? Like, it's an odd thing to sell at the airport.
0: But, you know, you do some
1: planning and and you figure that out ahead of time. Now, to continue the the sort of pedantry of this, this metaphor, the other characteristic of going to the Oregon Trail, unless you're the first 10 people to do it, is hundreds, if not thousands of people have done it already. So you kind of know what it's going to be like. It's the equivalent in a piece of software if they were like, this application is written in COBOL. I want you to now write it in, I don't know, what do the kids do nowadays? Something.io? Good. I want you to write this in hot new language.io and basically just duplicate it, right? Like you're going to still have to discover how to do things and solve problems, but. If the job is to one to one duplicate something, then it's a lot. You can do a lot more upfront planning for it.
0: All you're doing is making the Uber of Airbnb. Yes, yeah. Then you're done.
1: So yeah, I think that's the truth. Is you know, and I want to put it another way. Is you know, we used to have this uh, down here in Texas. The, the man, if, if the way we run government here is just lovely, but we used to have this notion of a zero budget, which is basically like assume i'm going to give you nothing and justify every penny that i'm going to give you i think that's a way to th- a good way to think about defaults i mean about requirements is default to like you don't need any and only get as many requirements as you need and if you're building tanks or going to the oregon trail you might need a lot of requirements up front that are actually helpful but like
0: assume you're just going to just strike out naked walking west yeah, no, no, I mean, that's probably a bad idea. Unless right. you're I mean, it is a bad idea, but it, that's the bar, right? right it's like, right, what right. would happen if I were to do that? I might make it
1: uh, 20 miles. And build up from there, right? Like, build up from there and then have all the requirements that you need. Like, I'm sure when Lewis and Clark went, they were like, uh, we're going to need like a quill and some paper and maybe a canoe and probably some guns. And then uh, let's see what happens.
0: But, but right. that, that was a whole different situation
1: <laughs> than, than going to uh, establish uh, Portland.
0: That was like an ultimate agile mm. move, right? I mean, that was a pretty, pretty agile project. Sure, they needed boats; they built them, um, but they didn't leave St. Louis carrying boats,
1: right? And they also didn't have like a family of six that they needed to support, and like all this kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a question you asked a long time ago, not to steal the uh-huh. emceeing for you. Well, which I, it... I
0: was saying we could, we need to get onto our topic. Uh... Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well get, maybe, maybe this is a good segue. You're asking, how do you get this job? And I don't. I don't think we ever uh, addressed oh, yeah, yeah, that. Yeah,
0: yeah, That's a great. Uh, that's a great question. you yeah, yeah. said you did say you had to consume a lot of stuff on the internet.
1: Right, right, right. So, so that that's that definitely is how I do the job. But I, I think I think how I get the job. And there's 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 an extended two part interview with me on uh, my Software Defined Talk podcast episode available at Software Defined Talk. Dot com. Anyways, where I talk about like my my history of becoming an analyst and things like that. But the way it happened is uh, I was already like I don't have any any visible hobbies, as you know, Charles, except reading the tech world uh, stuff in the tech world. So I would read about what's happening in the tech world. And I would blog about it back in the 2004 2005. And I was discovered, as it were, by the people at Red Monk. I remember for some reason, I wrote some lengthy uh, opinion piece about a uh, a release of Lotus Notes. I re- I don't know why. And, but that was a good example. And so this is back when all of the programming jobs were going to be offshored. And so I thought it was imminent that I was going to lose my job. So I shifted over, I was looking for a job and I shifted over to being an analyst. And so that, that's sort of like the way that you get into this kind of business is you establish, there's, there's two ways. You establish expertise, right? Yeah, yeah, which which is like always an unhelpful answer because it's sort of like, I was just joking about this in another podcast. It's, It's like Seth Godin's advice about doing good marketing, which is the way you do good marketing is you have an excellent product. Right. If you have an excellent product that everyone wants to buy, then you don't, your marketing will take care of itself. And it's like, well, I think if I'm asking how to market, I'm trying to figure out how to market a, sh- a bad product. Right. <laughs> That's really what people want to know.
0: That's also just not true. That's just like flat ass not true. Yeah. That's a lie.
1: I, I mean, pe- people who want to know how to diet better are not already healthy and dieting successful. Right. Like, you can't start with the base assumption of things are going well.
0: Right. Well, and it's true. I, mean, I, I like to think, like, we have an excellent product. Like, we sell an excellent product. But the thing is, you can just sit on your excellent product all day and you have to tell people about it if, if you want them to come sample it and try it and, and maybe eventually buy it. Like, it's the true. advice that you just need an excellent, like, product. I don't, I'm don't. i amazed that anyone actually can say that with a straight face. Well, I mean, you know, he only writes, like,
1: 150-word blog posts. It but yes, I, I, think, I think his point is that you should aspire to have a unique situation and then marketing is easier right? Mm-hmm. right similar to everyone's favorite example like an apple or or even like right. a pivotal like, or like a pivotal or a thought works right like we eat right. all three of us and yourselves as well once someone gives you the benefit of the doubt of listening you can explain why what you have is not available anywhere else right
0: right what it boils down to is if you want to easily differentiate allow people to differentiate your product from others then be different so that's fair. I'll give, you know.
1: And, and to summarize it and to get some more of the tactics of how one gets a job like I do, what's, what's the name of the, the, the short guy in Game of Thrones? Tyrion? Tyrion? Tyrone? Uh, Tyrion. Tyrion. So, you know, at one point, Tyrion's like, I do two things. I know things and I drink, right? And so that's how, <laughs> that's how you get into this type of business as you establish yourself as an expert and you know things, right? Now, the third thing, which I guess Tyrion was not always required to do, is you have to be able to communicate. In pretty much all forms, right? You need to be able to good at written communication, at uh, verbal communication, at uh, PowerPoint communication, whatever all the mediums are. Like, just knowing something is not very useful. You also what? have to tell people these things.
0: I think Tyrion's pretty good at that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. But he's he he doesn't ever like write anything as far. I mean, there were there were no there was no Twitter or there is no Twitter or or things like that. like he would have been a pretty big deal on the blogosphere. Sure, sure. No doubt. No doubt. Anyways, the metaphor kind of breaks down because the lattice for the continuing counter arguments do not exist in the Game of Thrones universe. But whatever.
0: They've got the Ravens. That's like Twitter. I that's mean, true.
1: Birds. Knowing how to deploy a raven at the right time with the right message is valuable.
0: <laughs> we buffer up our ravens yeah. so that they fly right at eleven o'clock.
1: That's true. Yeah, maybe I could be convinced otherwise. Anyways. that's
0: why they arrive at uh, both at six p.m. in uh, Westeros. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I guess, I guess, I guess, true to the metaphor of of a tweet, most of the communications in Game of Thrones is either what are they called, little birds that the eunuch always has, and then the big birds you got you got the you got the tweets he and the blogs about no
0: twitter this is like it's nothing but twitter exactly
1: you got to be able to communicate across mediums now the the other thing that's helpful and you don't necessarily have to do this but this is what i think gets you into the larger margin uh, the more profitable parts of of the work that i do is you have to be able to consult with people and give them advice and consulting is largely about First, figuring out the right opportunity to tell them how they can improve, which usually is, it's good if they ask you first. I don't know about you, <laughs> but I've I've found that if you just pro-offer advice, especially with your spouse, you're basically told that you're a jerk.
0: Well, it'd be like a personal trainer kind of walking around and being like, hey man, I don't know, your muscle tone's kind of flabby. You could really work on that. The line between a good consultant
1: and being overly splainy is, is difficult to discern, but it's something that, that you have to master. Now- the other way you consult with people is you you study them and understand what their problems are and you're sympathetic to them and uh, I don't know I guess you can be like a British nanny and just scold them. That's a certain subset of consulting.
0: Don Rickles of consulting. <laughs> That's right. You
1: you just you just help them understand how all this knowledge that you have applies to them and it'll help solve their problems like the the Ford Pass thing. And then, and then tactically what you do is like, like so when I went from being a developer to an analyst, it was a big risk to take on. I mean, I think I probably took like a $30,000 pay cut and I went from like a big company health insurance to like being on a 1099 and buying your own health insurance, which that's a whole other conversation. We talk about that every now and then, but like, it's a risky affair, right? Like it's not, it's not a promotion or even like a lateral move, it's just like an entirely different career that you go into. And then, uh, I don't know, you talk with people a lot. And as an analyst, you're constantly having to sort out the biases that you have with vendors who want to pay you to say things versus end users who want to hear the truth. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You can't really see a lot of Gartner and Forrester work, but the work that you can see publicly from people like Red Monk, it's
0: um, it's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah, it is. And they're always, you know, whenever they did a... um... A piece that was for one of their clients, there was always like a full, you know, yeah. there was always a big disclaimer, big fat disclaimer.
1: Now, now the, the other thing I would say is what I've noticed, not to be all navel-gazing, what I've noticed about myself and other people who are successful at whatever it is I do is there's two things. One, they constantly are putting themselves out there which is a very, I remember, and this this is probably still the case. There's always lots of, every. this is probably all in Medium now. There's probably a Medium post <laughs> every quarter that's like, if you're a developer, how do you give your, more talks? What's your first conference talk? And basically the chief advice in there, other than bring business cards and rehearse, is essentially like you just got to like get over that idea of self-promotion, right? Like you basically have to self-promote yourself incessantly and do all those things that you find nauseous. To uh, mm-hmm. be like me, 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 which which is true. So you've got to get over that thing of going out there. If if you're like me, and you're an introvert who actually doesn't really like that many people, except a handful of people like yourself that I'm friends or family with, you have to put on the mask of an extrovert and go out there and do all this extrovert stuff, or or you'll hmm. you'll fail. I shouldn't say you'll fail, you won't you won't increase your overall comp and margin and everything you'll sort of You'll basically bottom out at about 120000 a year or so because that's about as much as anyone will pay for someone who just writes stuff but doesn't actually engage in the world and consult. Hmm. So you got to do that. And then the other consequence of that is you always have to be trying out new types of content and mediums like here we are on a podcast, right? And long, yeah. long ago, you and I in two thousand
0: five or four. You saw you got me to sign up for Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Like,
1: like, like we started off a podcast because I remember hearing the IT conversation stuff and John Udell, who was a big uh, sort of inspiration for me, a role model. Like, I remember he was just trying out podcasts, and I was like, "All right, I'll try that out. That looks like fun." Yeah. And then here we are, right? <laughs> like, like
0: I, have to say, I remember you tried out the pod. You're like, "Yeah, well, let's go." Uh, you. Let's go into your backyard or my backyard and let's talk about software that's for right. 15 minutes. Yep. And I remember that very clearly back in – yeah, that was 12 years ago. Uh, and then I remember also like with Twitter, like you're like, yeah, you should sign up for this Twitter thing. And like I remember I did and that's when it was still coming through SMS on your phone. Yeah. And like I have to admit, Kote, you were like, I'm walking around t- Town Lake. I'm going to get tea. Yep. I'm doing like – and I was like, oh my god, this is so fucking yeah, stupid. Yeah, it, it was Excuse the uh, – this is so but yes, like little did I know you were like, actually, you know, so you, you signed me up to a service that changed my life.
1: Yeah, every, every it was it was the stage direction era of Web 2.0, where you're just supposed to give people your status updates instead of your right. your searing insights. But yeah, so you try out all right. these different mediums, because again, it goes back to your job is to communicate, right? Like you need to tell people things that, you know. So, Kote, what is your strategy on virtual reality. No, oh, my strategy on virtual reality. Well, <laughs> you've caught me Charles cuz I'm not into that. I re- do you remember when Time magazine had that Chinese lady who was like a uh, not frontside. What was the name of the big virtual reality thing that was big? That was going to take over the second life. Who was the second
0: life millionaire. Yeah, yeah. She had armies of people. Was it? It was second life that she was like uh, mining. She was mining some resource in second life and then reselling it, and she made a lot of money.
1: I mean, I I don't really like visual mediums. So, as Marshall McLuhan would say, hot mediums. I guess I like the cool mediums. So that's that's not my thing. That's where my principle fails. I just I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll do that. You don't think this is this is pretty hot right here? This 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 medium is pretty like. Oh I don't know. I mean I think I think maybe broad maybe audio broadcast is a hot media. Yeah. I I don't I'm just pretending like I know. This is another <laughs> trick that you can deploy that my wife Kim has picked on is most of the time 78% of the time I actually have no idea what I'm talking about. I just know words mm. that I'm stringing together like I don't actually know Marshall McLuhan theory. I read that one book a long time ago and I remember that scene in uh, is it Annie Hall where he gives a little diatribe to uh, whatever the Woody Allen character is. That's the extent of my Marshall McLuhan knowledge.
0: Okay, was Marshall McLuhan actually in Annie Hall? He was. Yeah. yeah. Don't sell yourself short, Cote. Sure. You know things and you drink. So let's talk about that second, uh, that like that second aspect. Uh-huh. Because I know that you, like me, whole Tyrion up as a role model. Well, I should
1: say since we're both happily married, except for the third thing that he does, oh, which he right, doesn't right, mention, right, which is right, 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 right. right. Another another yep. unmentioned word. He he uh, too freely hangs out with the ladies.
0: Right. So anyway, aside from that, throughout kind of you know doing all this stuff you keep a very very chill perspective uh on things i feel like the tech world gets so like wound up around itself and like it gets so tight and it's so stressed about its own like problems you know there's constantly wars in javascript and you know before we were in the javascript world we were warring on you know in ruby and like mm. You know, I remember when when Twitter went over to uh, using Scala instead of Ruby. Oh, my goodness. It was terrible times. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of stress and people. I mean, yes, you want to take it seriously. But I feel like you've always been able to maintain a even keeled perspective about technology, which actually allows you to commentate on it uh, effectively and intelligently because you're able to unwind yourself from kind of the, the the squabbles of the day. And see, you know, maybe a bigger picture or something like that.
1: That's nice of you to characterize me as. To use a, is that a, is that a hanging dangling participle there when you end with an as? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's also just a function of being old. Like,
0: are you are, so? Are you actually like uh, not stressed, or is it just part of your persona, like being an extrovert or something like that? No, no. About the tech
1: world, no, I'm not stressed yeah. about that. And 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 I think I think the the other thing is. I mean, as you kind of outlined, especially, I'm guessing, uh, I, I was not sent the demographics for this show, which, which is fine. I'll overlook that, but I'm guessing that that was a joke. We've got
0: some designers,
1: developers, yeah, 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 like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm guessing there's a lot of people who actually on the, are on the front lines of working on software, right? And I, and I think this happens also in the, in the white collar set, but essentially, uh, it's really easy to slip into over allegiance to something. And I don't know what. What rhetorical fallacy this is, but it's the bias of like over allegiance to something, and you get all wrapped up in defending a tool uh over something and the virtue of it, right, like whether it's emacs and v i or I'm sure whatever. reactive people, whatever that is, like have all sorts of debates right mm-hmm. and the thing is when your head's down on this stuff, you don't realize how petty all those discussions are, and therefore. It's not so much that it's a waste of your time, but like, it's just one battle in an overall war that you have. And it's good to have opinions and figure things out. But you should just relax about it. Because the more like angry and emotional you get, you're going to make a lot of mistakes and, and decision and problems, right? And I mean I wish I had an example of this but it's just this is one of those things that intuitively as you as you age as a developer and it's not like your literal age it's just the amount of time you've been developing software mm-hmm. right like you right. could you could be a 25 year old who's been developing software 10 years and you would probably get this notion but you just realize that like stuff changes and you just learn the new things right and it's kind of not a big deal right like One day Mm -hmm. you're going on and on about how VI is great. And the next day you're using that Atom editor and then whatever. And you just, it's just like, you just use the tool that's appropriate. And it's really like annoying when you're younger and people reply in your hacker news with like, you should use the tool that's appropriate, which is a stupid reply. That's just kind of how it is. And then also the other thing, like in, in the more white collar world is like as an analyst and especially doing strategy for a company, you can't be biased by things because then you'll make, Poor decisions as an analyst that bias you. And also when you're doing strategy and yeah. MA that, that result in bad business outcomes. So you have, actually, right. have to actually be right. very um, unbiased. I think about it applies things.
0: in everything. You know, if you get too emotionally invested in one particular approach in software, like literally in anything you do, it does result in bad at- outcomes. Um, the problem is you might not actually realize the consequences of those bad outcomes far, far down the road from, you know, the, the poor decision that you made that caused you to net that outcome. Yeah. Uh, and so you don't, you might not necessarily connect it back. Yeah. And, and then, and then I keep bringing this up, but I think another effect of being
1: calmer in your, your nerd life is having something that you do outside, uh, outside of your programming life. Right. I think, which is either, either having a family or having hobbies or something like that, but like, you know, or having wild turkeys. Yeah, or you, but you got to have something that you do that you look you need to have a reason to stop thinking about your tech stuff or it'll consume you. And I suspect, you know, when you see the older gray beards with who who go on and on about like open source and they're very like, I don't know, what's the word? They they're very over the top and uh and fervent about tech stuff. It's probably because like me that's like their only hobby and they haven't figured out how to how to control it. It, it like becomes part of their identity and it defines them and then they're down this uh this twisty turn turny path of annoyance to the rest of us. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, again, don't sell yourself short, Kote. You've got plenty. You love the, the cooking and the, the, the cooking and the eating and the drinking. So close this. So do you have a favorite, uh, a favorite drink that you've been mixing lately? Ooh, no. Or favorite, any, any kind of favorite food? Because, you know, every time I go over to your house, even if we're having like pizza, there's always a nice hors d'oeuvre or, you know, a nice something to drink, something to kind of, uh, you know, tweak that appetite for something special. And so I'm kind of wondering if, if there's anything that you're into. I have
1: some very basics. So one, I've been, I've, I don't know if I'm supposed to uh, drink a lot or drink a little. I think the science on this is very confusing, kind of like drinking coffee. And so like mm-hmm. I try to drink less. So I'm tr- <laughs> I, I basically go back to the basics of I want cheap wine that's not terrible. So that's what I'm always trying to discover. And I, I think I've also started to rediscover just straight vodka. That's pretty good. I think that fits into the grand scheme.
0: Sure. Hmm. I just can't. I can't do it. I can't. I can't. I can't follow you there. I need some. I need some. What are they A call mixer. Them Gin florals. Oh, well, yeah. I, I can drink gin. Oh, yeah. Gin. That's, uh, that's need, good, too. I need like that's about as close as I can get to straight vodka. And,
1: the, and then food wise, I've just wrapped up finally figuring out how to cook fish and chicken without it tasting terrible.
0: Oh, what's the secret? Now,
1: I want to put a disclaimer out here. There's a EULA on this. I'm not responsible for anything bad that happens. But what you want to do is cook it about 10 degrees less than you're supposed to. Right? So chicken is supposed to be 165 degrees. But you take it out of the pot when it's like 150, 155. Or not the pot or the pan. And fish is supposed to be 145 degrees. But you take it off when it's about 130, 135. And like it cooks a little bit more. But these guidelines... To like cook your right. meat to that thing, it ruins it. And also you can brine yeah. a chicken and things like that. And then also what you want to get is an instant meat thermometer, like one of those that you can just poke in your meat. And so you're always like checking the temperature. And, and that's uh, that's that's what I've been working on.
0: Okay. And then, you know, I have a theory about that. I will lay it out really quickly is that maybe it's just because the juices kind of like you want, it's the juice that's uh, mm-hmm. so, so yummy there. And so you want those to be locked in and boiled, totally. uh, but not boiled away. That's right. And so, yeah, so so I'm going to give that a try. Uh, and and fish is
1: particularly tricky. I th-
0: well, because it takes like five minutes. Uh, exactly. Sometimes it's like two minutes, two, you know, and 30 seconds too long and you've ruined the fish. Yeah,
1: and the, the next theory I want to try out is that you can actually fry fish in pure butter, but you've got to paper towel it off afterwards because too much butter ruins it. But I think if you paper towel it off like you do grease off of bacon – then I think that's how you achieve. Not as good as a restaurant, because I think in a restaurant they have those butane torches and they'll like crisp it up on the outside or reverse sear it or whatever. What they
0: do? Do they just kind of just run the torch know. right over the, the fish?
1: That's all I can figure. They might also be professional cooks
0: who know how to cook mm-hmm. things. Um, <laughs> they might have done it a lot of times. <laughs> and they might have had someone like Gordon Ramsay yelling at them constantly. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe this fish is so terrible. Uh. All right. So I'm going to give the fish a try. I'm going to give the chicken a try. And I'm going to give everything that you just spent the last hour talking about also a try. Mm. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. It's always fun to
1: uh to have a show, you know, have a show with you. You know, we I just I just posted yesterday our second tri- uh, revival of uh the Drunken Retired podcast, mm. which uh it's over at Cote. show. It's just dot that show. That's right. URLs are crazy nowadays. And uh, I don't know, I guess the only self-promotional thing I have is uh, I'm I'm over in Twitter at Cote, C-O-T-E, and uh, it'd be nice. Everyone should just go follow me there because I'm always very sad that I don't have enough followers, and they'll never verify me. I don't understand what the problem is. I'm clearly me. Uh, and uh, and then I mentioned earlier, the, the main podcast that I do is uh, Software Defined Talk, which is at softwaredefinedtalk.com, and you should come spend a lot of money on Pivotal stuff. I'm, I'm happy to tell you all about that. Just uh, go check out Pivotal at Pivotal.io.
0: I guess that uh, that is about it. So uh, we will talk to everybody later. Thank you for staying tuned and listening to this supersized episode. Come check us out sometime.